Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Dr. Joseph Cranin is the founder of Singular Sleep, the first ever virtual sleep center. He's a board-certified neurologist and a sleep medicine practitioner. His practice focuses on the remote diagnosis and management of sleep apnea. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Chase, happy to be here with you. Glad to have you on. I am really interested to hear how the first ever virtual sleep center works. But first, I just have to ask you an icebreaker question. It's really interesting to hear where physicians' brains go with this one since you're doing first ever in a certain specialty here with your virtual sleep apnea diagnosis. How do you feel that you are changing medicine or medical education for the better? Well, I haven't had the opportunity to do that much education yet with singular sleep. I would welcome that. Maybe something will come of that out of your podcast. But in terms of medicine, in 2015, this idea came to be sort of like an epiphany. And the epiphany was, it doesn't have to be this hard. Getting diagnosed and treated for sleep apnea doesn't have to involve multiple trips to a doctor, one or more in-lab sleep studies, and one or more trips to a durable medical equipment company. The idea was, I think we can do this all remotely, theoretically, without the patient ever having to leave their home. And I think we can get outcomes just as good as the traditional model has provided and at a fraction of the cost. The listeners who aren't familiar with the traditional model, it was typically started with symptoms like snoring, non-restorative sleep, so getting adequate amounts of sleep, but not feeling refreshed when you wake up, feeling tired and sleepy during the day. Then you go to your doctor, report the symptoms. He or she would take some history and then, if appropriate, refer you for a sleep study. And you have to go spend a full night in the sleep lab with all this stuff hooked up to you. All this stuff that's actually a lot of it's extraneous for the diagnosis of sleep apnea. It's interesting stuff like EKG, but you don't need it for the diagnosis of sleep apnea. And then, by the way, you're going to bed at like 9 p.m. and waking up at 5 a.m., which is out of sync with most people's sleep schedules. So it's usually not a good night's sleep or a fun experience. Then you have to schlep back to your doctor's office to go over the results. And he or she would typically say, Yeah, you have sleep apnea. It's just a very, very common thing. And then you'd have to go back for another sleep study to try the CPAP machine and find the proper pressure setting for you. And then you need to go to a durable medical equipment company to get the equipment. And then you go back to your doctor or sleep specialist might be involved here to take over management or to go over the results. So it's a very tortuous process for people who are regular folks that have jobs. Most of us now 
having to choose high deductible plans, $5,000 more on your personal deductible. Some of these sleep studies, we hear people being charged six, $7,000 just for the first sleep study, let alone all the other stuff. So the way our process works, totally different. We just try to simplify the process, make it more palatable for people. First of all, the one of the main things is we say, we are going to assume that you're intelligent enough to know if you're at risk for sleep apnea and let you order your own sleep study. It's not that hard to know. If you're snoring all the time, you're waking up gasping for air, okay, I think you might be at high risk. Let's get that checked out. So we let people order it themselves and they can order online through a simple form. There's no screening or stuff like that, pre-authorization. And then we send them a home testing kit, which is the minimum amount of stuff, sensors that we need to accurately diagnose sleep apnea. They send it back to us. I read the studies very quickly. We turn around the results. If they test positive, then we offer them the ability to meet online with me with a virtual consultation. During that meeting, I'll go over the results for them and talk about the treatment options and formulate the treatment plan with them. And then most people will choose to use CPAP. If they do, Singular Sleep also supplies and manages that, which is really the best scenario for people. If they want to go through their insurance or get the equipment elsewhere, we give them a prescription and they do with it as they will. But if they get the equipment from Singular Sleep, we have it registered in our system. And now the machines are so advanced, we can actually remotely monitor them, determine how well the therapy is working. And ultimately, what we want to do is find that best pressure to set the CPAP machine to, which we can do remotely now. We have these auto-adjusting machines. We start them out at auto-adjust mode with the full factory default gamut of pressure settings, let them do their things. I check the data in about a month. We see what the best pressure is. Boom, we remotely dial it in with them. Just as good uh, as going into a a sleep lab and spending a whole night there. So, all right, this is really interesting. I have several friends and family members that have sleep apnea that are on CPAPs, BiPAPs, whichever machine they might be using. I'm not extremely familiar with them myself. And I remember some of them explaining the process was quite arduous, as you described. You're in this weird lab with all these things attached to you. It's just uncomfortable to sleep normally, let alone at a specific time. You're in an outside setting. You don't have your normal sleep ritual or whatever going on. And actually, personal story there is that's why it took so long for my father to get diagnosed because we knew all growing up, we could hear him snoring from across the room when we were children. And then he'd wake up because he couldn't breathe. We told him for years he had this, but he refused to go into a sleep study center. And so he waited for one that he could do at home. And then the first one came back as a false negative. So we're like, no, 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 that's not right. <laughs> you need to go get a real test. Don't know what test exactly he used. I guess there's quite a few variations. And that was many years ago. So the technology now for at home studies is probably, as you're describing, much more advanced. It's such a simple issue to potentially fix if you get the diagnosis, but such a pain in the butt to diagnose that a lot of patients are going to go for years and years and years without that actual diagnosis, without the treatment that can really improve their quality of life. And I want to speak to really the first thing you said with sharing that story, which was you didn't know all that much about this stuff. So what we frequently cite is that 
the average medical student gets one hour of training in sleep disorders in their four years. So you're in the majority. And it's a black box to a lot of doctors. The thing is that sleep disorders are one of the most common issues in primary care. And they crop up in a lot of different disciplines, pediatrics, psychiatry, ENT, all sorts of stuff will touch this or has a role in managing it. Yeah, we have pretty much no education in that early on. It's not something that's really tested on the board, so it doesn't make it into the review material very often. Maybe you'll have a question or two if you're really lucky or unlucky, depending on how you view that specialty. But it's not in like the last version of first aid I read anyway, or online videos that a lot of students use. There's not a lot on sleep medicine. But as you described, something a lot of people have trouble with in primary care, whether it's sleep apnea or insomnia or one of many other sleep disorders. So I do think that as we're changing in general into a more virtual telemedicine type of field, that this will definitely open up the doors and allow many more people to be diagnosed and treated properly, saving them a lot of time and money, saving them a lot of headache down the road as well. Exactly. Yeah. And so sleep medicine lends itself particularly well to telemedicine. I lump it in there with like psychiatry and a couple of other things where you don't need to do a physical exam. When you're doing the physical exam, it's mostly for insurance purposes. So you can bill at a higher level and they'll pay for the visit. But you know, the most important thing really is to look in the person's throat, which you can do, which I've done. But really, that is secondary to the history. It's all clinical. It's all about the history and sleep medicine. You can diagnose every single sleep disorder is clinical basis, no physical exam findings that are essential with or without a sleep study. So that's how we make diagnoses in this field. This episode is brought to you by findarotation.com, where students and preceptors can schedule rotations with ease and security and schedule your next clinical rotation. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. And then for this specialty, it's kind of an interesting one. So I've been learning a little bit more about it just because I have friends in residency right now that are looking to go into sleep medicine later on. And apparently there are a lot of different pathways into sleep medicine. You went the pathway of neurology, but I hear there are others too, family medicine, maybe a couple others that can lead to a sleep medicine fellowship? Absolutely. So it's a very young field, which is cool because everything's not totally delineated and mapped out yet. You can be a part of that. Really, the godfather of sleep medicine just passed away, Dr. Demet. And he was a psychiatrist. And his right-hand man just passed away not so long ago, either Christian Guillaume Minot, he's a neurologist. So these were really the main figures who created the field. And then what happened was we saw a shift to pulmonology kind of taking over because clinically the majority of sleep medicine is sleep apnea. But then the pendulum's been swinging back the other way. I'd, I'd say probably the majority, or I'd say the biggest component 
if you looked at a pie chart, are still pulmonologists, but there's then it's probably neurology. There are a lot of people though that went right from internal medicine into a sleep medicine fellowship. Pediatrics, ENT is rare because from a dollars and cents standpoint, it doesn't make so much more sense to do that other year of training. Family practice, that's a lesser known one, but they are still, to my knowledge, eligible to sit for the sleep boards. Things have changed a lot with sleep education. In the old days, it was the Wild West. You basically read a book, took a test, and you were board certified. That was one of those deals. And there was a huge variability in knowledge and skill. When I went to fellowship in 2008, it was actually the last year where you didn't have to do a formal ACGME-approved fellowship. You could go get mentored somewhere, and if you showed that you read X amount of sleep studies with someone overreading you and saw X amount of patients, then you could sit for the boards. But I thought, and I think that people are going to want, I can see where this is going. People, I think, are going to want to see that you've got this training. I think this more rigorous training will be good. So I went to University of Michigan, which was great. I saw a lot of really interesting pathology there, very complicated sleep breathing disorders and, and hypersomnias and whatnot. I think it was a good move. And now you have to, if you want to go into it, you've got to do a one-year sleep medicine fellowship. Some people do two years, a year of research as well. It's less common. But at certain places like uh, Penn, University of Pennsylvania, that's fairly common. Yeah, that's a little background about how things have evolved. And now you used to be able to be, when you pass that test, you were board certified for life. And now you have to do recertifications, which I think is, you know, has its merits. Make sure you're keeping up on the latest developments and stuff like that. I just took my 10-year recertification last year, which was interesting having to sit down and stuff like you've been going through study, except now there's two kids running around and it was all about going to Starbucks and putting in the earplugs and, and trying to focus. So then for a student that might still not know too much about this specialty or looking to get into it, I kind of want to tackle this on two ends, actually. First one being, what are some of the most common? You said sleep apnea is like the bread and butter of the specialty. What are probably like bread the Bread and butter or, or the cross to bear, however you <laughs> yeah. want to think of that. So what are the top maybe four or five of them that you see the most? So when I say sleep apnea, mostly that's referring to obstructive sleep apnea, but there are different forms of that central, there's forms of central sleep apnea, Shane Stokes respirations central sleep apnea due to certain drugs, medical problems. There's a very subtle form of obstructive sleep apnea that's a bit controversial called upper airway resistance syndrome. So it's mostly about sleep breathing problems. The other top ones are insomnia, for sure, would be number two, but very much interdependent with sleep apnea. A lot of folks in primary care Practitioners don't realize this. this is a major problem. During sleep apnea, you're having these abnormal breathing events and having a massive stress response. Basically, your sympathetic nervous system gets set off and you have a brain awakening. And typically, it leads to what we call sleep maintenance insomnia, trouble staying asleep. Usually, sleep apnea doesn't cause so much trouble falling asleep. Staying asleep is huge. A lot of primary care docs 
don't think about this, especially when someone like you walks in who is slender, young, presumably very healthy, and they give people Ambien or whatever. And they're just kind of suppressing, trying to suppress the symptoms, but not getting at the root of it. And that the problem at the root of it can cause, as you know, some major issues, hypertension, heart disease, stroke, et cetera. So people need to be thinking about that interdependence there. With insomnia, if we've ruled out an underlying sleep disorder or underlying medical or psychiatric problem, then there's sort of two pathways to go. The more effective pathway is called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. This is a series of usually about four to six sessions, and it's great for online telemedicine, where you work with people to really change how their brain thinks about sleep and rewire their relationship with their bed. And this has been shown long-term to be more effective than the other pathway, which is pharmacotherapy. All right. The other very, very common things are restless leg syndrome. And then less frequently, hypersomnias like narcolepsy, idiopathic hypersomnia, things like that. And parasomnia is very interesting. But often the underlying problem is sleep apnea. I have this saying when I talk to residents in, in medicines that it's like the 200, it's like the do not pass go, do not collect $200 rule monopoly. You have to assess and treat for sleep apnea and oftentimes all the other stuff goes away really insomnia restless legs parasomnias they often go away when you treat sleep apnea but parasomnias can be interesting so complex behaviors arising out of sleep REM sleep behavior disorder is a very fascinating disease where people essentially act out their dreams can be very dangerous i've done that (laughs) uh, yeah 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 so those are the major categories of things that we deal with in this field. The majority of them is going to be the, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Is going to be the sleep apnea, and then maybe secondary would be insomnias. But actually, you bring up an interesting one that I only remember one clinical correlate from all of med school, and that's restless leg syndrome and what is it? Iron deficiency, I believe. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> the only time I've ever seen a question on that topic was yeah, iron deficiency. That's a good board question for sure. Yeah. So that's a really interesting. I was just talking with the patient about that earlier. So she tested negative on her sleep site for sleep apnea. And usually the second thing on the list is okay, if you're getting adequate amounts of sleep, waking up not feeling refreshed, it's probably restless leg. And it's cousin periodic limb movement disorder or PLMD, which about 80% of people with restless legs will have these leg twitches, these very stereotyped twitches in their sleep that lead to cortical arousals, brain awakenings, and just trash their sleep. So I went into it thinking, okay, this is probably going to be it with her without knowing anything about it. And then sure enough on her questionnaire, restless leg, she was on an SSRI which brings out restless leg syndrome, and she copped to a history of iron deficiency anemia, the classic. So what the first thing we're going to do is recheck her iron levels. And iron is a cofactor for dopamine, you know, dopamine synthesis in the brain. And so if you don't have this sufficient iron, you can't get the dopamine. Of course, dopamine controls a motor 
activity. And what's really interesting is that it doesn't have to reach the level of anemia. Yeah, a ferritin less than 75 in the right clinical context, the person is having RLS is probably should be presumed to be the cause of that and should be treated until you get above 75. So that's not that low. And it's very common in women who are menstruating, right? So they're losing iron every month. Okay. So we have the main diseases, main pathologies that we're going to see in sleep medicine. We kind of understand a little bit better about the fellowship aspect of it, of continuing education. Let's take a quick step back a little bit. And I know this isn't something that I've seen because sleep medicine was not a rotation that was available in any resource that I used. But let's say a student can find a sleep medicine rotation or is looking for one. Are there any things that you would recommend for them, whether it be study-wise, preparation, in order to maybe maximize their experience there to get the most out of the rotation? Yeah, absolutely. So in my opinion, the best resource for students, med students or residents not going into sleep medicine, but want to do a rotation, say they're in primary care or psychiatry and they want to get some experience with sleep medicine because it's going to be a part of their career. There's a book called Sleep Medicine Pearls by Dr. Richard Berry, the head of the sleep center at the University of Florida. This is something most of us have used coming up. It's a series of vignettes. It's really good, very readable, very well put together. I'd highly recommend that. All right. Very interesting. Do you think that this is still a very growing field and it's probably going to make it down to the medical education aspect and to med school more so in the next few years, bit by bit, as there seems to be a transfer of some of the focus of medical school from more of internal medicine topics, hospitalist topics to more primary care topics, which you said this is very integrated with and having some knowledge on these and knowing what to do next, what to look for can greatly help the patients early on. That's an interesting question. What we hear from people who survey this is that in general, sleep medicine is still underserved across the country. So there's still sort of a baseline demand for it, apparently. But also, I think you're hitting on, there has been a longstanding push, I don't know how successful it is, to emphasize primary care more. And I think we're, we're seeing changes to lead to better compensation for primary care docs and kind of pushing people into that. And I think we, it's clear we have a major shortage there. And so changing the paradigm, and I think depending on what happens politically, that could have a major inflection point in the next presidency. And so, yeah, a lot more people are kind of being funneled into primary care. It's going to be an increasingly important topic. They're going to be the first line for this, and it's going to come up all the time. So a good primary care practitioner should be able to manage the simple stuff and should be familiar with CPAP and what a CPAP data report looks like and is it working or not? Is the person doing well? You know, to have a decent functionality, but also know when they need a lifeline and to refer out. Yeah, I definitely think there are going to be a lot of unexpected changes. Just there were a lot of changes going on that I've seen. And now with COVID, with everything politically happening, 
a lot of changes that there's no way we can predict at this point in time. But it'll be interesting to stay a part of it, stay prized, and hopefully help out the next generation as much as we can in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And on that note, are there any parting thoughts that you might have for students? I would say if you can get at least a week of training, maybe you might have to advocate for it during your internal medicine or neurology or psychiatry elective, depending on who's housing that, the sleep medicine department. That can vary. It's oftentimes it's in internal medicine. At Stanford, it's in psychiatry. At University of Michigan, where I trained, it was neurology. Try to get a week. I think it would be very valuable for most folks. You wouldn't regret that. And if you have any questions, we like to try to set ourselves up for training and research. I kind of miss that now being in private practice. So if anyone was super motivated and had an idea, I would entertain that and encourage them to contact me. And maybe we can get our website and email up with a post. Yeah, you and I definitely need to talk when we get off of this call here. But <laughs> speaking of which, where can the audience find out more about you or contact you? So singularsleep.com. We'll hopefully get that up there. And that's the best place. And just drop us a line or give a call and the staff will get you in touch with me. Sounds perfect. Well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Joseph Cranin, for coming on the show and discussing this really interesting and really evolving topic of sleep medicine. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.